hello and welcome to Please Don't Kick Me Out, a podcast about imposter syndrome. My name is Bianca Woolwick and I'm the host. I interview my friends and people that inspire me to figure out if they have the key to life and they feel successful or feel like they don't fit in like I do. Anyway, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Bullshit plug for the week is actually going to be something that I sit on the board of directors for, which is Mariah, which is um, San Diego real estate professionals that got together 15 plus years ago to help support the LGBT Center's Sunburst Youth Housing Project, which helps 18 to 24 youth that are homeless and um, have qualifiers such as, you know, AIDS, HIV, or um, in addition to other things. And it helps support them in a way that they help reinvigorate them back into society so that they can have a full and beautiful life. It is something that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I Most of my friends are queer and they are my chosen family 100%. And not only that, but I've always felt most accepted by my queer community as an ally for equality. I really am passionate about this organization as well as having a friend that was kicked out in his teens for coming out to his very religious family. It is something that I hold in my heart and always think about. So that is why I volunteer for them, um, regardless of the fact that I no longer am a marketing director at Lawyers Title San Diego. It is still something that I am passionate about helping with. So because we can't take to, you know, having in-person gatherings due to COVID-19 for 2020, um, donations to this are vital. So I am going to include my fundraising link, which is going to directly go to the LGBT Center's Sunburst Youth Housing Project and I'm gonna put that in the description. And I know it's weird to ask for donations for something that I sit on the board of directors for. However, um, it's not a donation for me. It doesn't go into my hands. It goes directly into the hands of the youth that need it the most. So thank you and please enjoy the episode. My guest this week is the wonderful, the lovely Carl Dunn, who is the author of My Gay Divorce. This is a super fun conversation and I'm excited to share it with you. So please enjoy the episode. Hey, how's it going? G'day, good. How you doing? <laughs> doing well. Happy Wednesday. Um, it's Happy Wednesday uh, to you. Yeah, we are in two different time zones because you're coming in uh, from Berlin and I am on the West Coast in sunny San Diego. Yes, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> so for my listeners, this is Please Don't Kick Me Out, a podcast about imposter syndrome and the lovely voice you're hearing on the other end is uh, Carl Dunn. Carl, would you like to give your elevator pitch, your 30,000 foot overview of who you are, what you do, etc.? Okay, should I start from the beginning of time or just what I'm doing right <laughs> whatever, now? Whatever, whatever you'd like to say. <laughs> okay, well, um, well, my name's Carl Dunn. I'm Australian. Um, I live in Berlin in Germany. And um, I've been fortunate enough to, uh, I've been a writer my entire life and that's taken different forms. Uh, but I've been fortunate enough to live and work uh, all over the world um, doing what I do. And my writing has taken the form of, I've worked in advertising for a long, long time, like 27 years. And um, uh, I also was a full-time screenwriter in Los Angeles for seven years. Um, 
and uh, in the middle of all of that. And then now I've changed careers uh, again, still writing, but this time I've written my first book. And that's one of the reasons why I moved to Berlin because some of my favorite writers and artists have come to this city to make what I think are some of their, their best works. So, uh, and I've been coming to Berlin um, uh, for work on and off for 15 years. And to be honest, I was tired of having a long distance relationship with this city. And so I decided mm -hmm. to, Berlin and I decided to move in together. So <laughs> now I'm here, I finished my first book. I freelance in advertising between here and the United States. And I live a pretty good life. Yeah, I love it. So for my listeners, um, before we clicked record, I mean, we had a beautiful conversation. Carl is an incredible person. I can already tell oh. character, character read. <laughs> um, but he actually reached out to me because I had a previous episode uh, with my friend John Zyker, who uh, is a television art director. And he and John are friends. And he is my first, uh, Carl is my first guest to actually reach out to me and request to be a podcast guest. So I'm very honored. And I'm excited. Yeah. To share his story. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I was really surprised about that when you, when you said that. But you know, I listened. I, I, John had posted his episode, and I, I listened to it, and I'm like, this is a really good idea, <laughs> because everybody will talk like quietly after like three or four beers at a well, maybe not quietly after three or four beers, but you know, a couple of drinks at a bar, and then people get close and they go, oh my god, I think I'm just like. I, I just think I'm really, maybe I'm just not very good at my job. Like, I just think, you know, they're going to get rid of it. And like, everybody feels this all the time. So I thought how great to do this as a topic um, because I think so many people relate to it. I know yeah. I, I certainly have, you know. Yeah. Mm. And in, in our conversation, I, we were talking, you were talking about how your book that you've written, there wasn't one. Yes. So you wrote it. And yes. this podcast, yes. there was one, it's about art and only art. And I'm not an artist. I'm creative. I craft, I'm doing, right. you know, I'm, I'm good with writing and stuff. I'm not conventionally an artist, but I feel imposter syndrome as a person in marketing. And I, as I had this conversation with my friends, they were like, Oh, I feel that way too. You know, so mm -hmm. it's interesting kind of um, in terms of sexuality, gender identity, the conversations I've been sharing, how many people really do feel affected by this phenomenon. And I think oh, it's yeah. a human thing. I, I just think yes. we're all our own worst critic. And unfortunately, <laughs> oh, yes, it yes. has a name called imposter syndrome. And I think that scares people. Because when I ask my heterosexual yeah. male friends, typically they don't feel that way because there's a pride and a sense of pride. And so, yeah. so I found that it's um, that not everyone completely identifies it with it. But since listening to my podcast, so many more people have come forward and said, oh, actually, I do have that. Yes, yes. And I... I think everybody does. I mean, perhaps, you know, heterosexual, well, if they're white heterosexual men, and, and, <laughs> and you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to get the boot in here or whatever, but, you know, as, as to people who are not white heterosexual men, um, you know, you do know that that, you know, we live in a world where there is a system that's kind of built, like if you're that, then the system's sort of built for you. So it is a bit, it's a lot more frictionless than yes. for the rest of us. Yes. Yet I see this in my, you know, heterosexual male friends everywhere. There's the, exactly the same things occur to us. I think things are just a maybe a little bit easier or have been in the past. Things are obviously changing very quickly with Me Too, Black Lives Matter. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, wow, what, a, what an amazing time, what amazing times we live in, you know, but uh, no, I think we, you know, everybody always feels like they're, they're winging it that, you know, I used to, I used to say that every, every day that I'd come to work, I'm half expecting somebody to walk in and tap me on the shoulder and go, dude, uh, 
<laughs> we found you out. It's like, oh my God, I knew this was going to happen. I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. I wasted everyone's time. I'll, I'll just pack my stuff up. I'm sorry. You know, I like, I would feel it almost, almost every day, you know, oh, yeah. um, doing what I do. Yeah. 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 I remember getting hired uh, for my job the, when I moved to San Diego and getting hired uh, at my previous position, which I've been laid off from thanks to COVID, um, hey. whatever, whatever that I'm podcasting now. It's great. So um, yeah. I remember every day I'd walk into work and I'm like, okay, today is going to be the day that they're going to come in here and tell me to pack oh. my shit and leave. Totally. Go, we don't want you. But mm -hmm. that never happened. And I think it's just, uh, it's just this innate need to feel like, are we good enough? Do we belong? Yes. Are, you know, are we capable of, of loving the things we've achieved and feeling proud of them? Yes. And I think that's yes. why this conversation is always so fun for me to have with everyone. Cause I get to learn so much about uh, people's lives, where it's taken them, their careers. So mm. we'll just hop into the elephant in the room, which is imposter syndrome. We'll start with the first question. You are a man okay. of many careers. You've lived in many countries. So yes. do you feel like you have it all figured out? Um, no, because, um, I still feel, um, uh, I still definitely have that imposter syndrome. Like I used to, the thing is these days, it's, it's more that when I feel it, I understand why I feel it. Um, and I can look at it and go, all right, Carl, what, just hang on a second. Why are you feeling this way? Oh, cause you're working on this thing and it's not particularly easy and you know but everybody else is struggling with it and you don't necessarily have to be the guy that comes up with the most brilliant idea and da 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 and i kind of i, I i've got much better at letting myself off the hook um because i think imposter syndrome is something that is completely created by ourselves in our own heads you know i mean there is no um uh you know we're going to kick you out department in every in every you know um, uh, company that you work at or whatever where they you know have cameras on you all the time going Look at that one there. Like they have no clue. Look at them. <laughs> you know, it's um. So I think it's something that we do to ourselves. Um, but as as far as like having it all worked out, I think you just get more. Um, certainly the process I went through. Um, you know, with with my book, um, where I uh, really a central part of kind of my personal evolution was sitting with my emotions which is not really something I've done much in my life. If anything, I've run sprinted from them. Uh, you know, uh, try to eat, shop, drink, party my way away from them, you know, but to actually sit with them and hang on to them. And you just do get to know a lot more about yourself and how you're wired and what makes you tick. And so amongst many things that I, I have a much better grasp on these days, uh, imposter syndrome is, is another one of them. So yeah, definitely don't have it all figured out because if I had it all figured out, I'd probably never feel it. <laughs> so, but I think I just have better ways of dealing with it. Yeah. 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 And you kind of touched on it, but we'll just hop into the actual question, which is, do you feel like you fit in, suffer from imposter syndrome in what ways and what does imposter syndrome mean to you? Well, imposter syndrome for me is when I find myself in a situation where I think, why am I here? Like, how did I actually get into this room? Like, how was I given this opportunity um, and that I'm out of my depth that everybody else has also figured this out, you know, that they've, they've also like gone, oh, this guy shouldn't have this job. And um, I, there's like a panic. There's a kind of like mild panic that sets in with it. 
Um, so that's, that's the thing I feel. And, and, or else sometimes it just goes into this, instead of like stabbing pains of maybe you find yourself in a particular incident mm -hmm. where you feel like you're, you're just like, oh man, I am so not equipped to be here and do what needs to be done. But sometimes there's just this general sense of existential dread that is more like a dull ache that can, you know, last for years doing a particular job that you do, um, or a thing that you're trying. And, um, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it takes, it likes to hurt you in different ways. It has different, <laughs> it has different flavors, imposter syndrome. But, um, <clears throat> I mean, I think the thing is, I think the thing that I've learned more than anything is that everybody feels it. Everybody you're talking to every day in every situation feels exactly the same way you do. Um, there's, um, you know, there's this saying I heard once, you know, that I thought was really interesting. That was, if everybody, if everybody took their problems out and put them in a pile in front of themselves and you looked around at everybody else's problems, you would gather your pile up again and go, thanks very much. Actually, I'm really good with these after all. And you would take them all back because you had no idea what's going on in other people's lives. Um, the pressures that they're feeling and that most people kind of feel like they're, most people are winging it. They're really winging it, you know? And I think the thing with imposter syndrome is that we've gotten into this habit of thinking that there is an absolute right answer and that we probably don't have it. And one of the most valuable lessons I, I got, um, so I, I had been a full-time, I'd been full-time in advertising for a long time. And then I decided I was going to leave and I was going to be a full-time screenwriter and just freelance in advertising. And I did that for about six or seven years. But I thought, um, then I decided, okay, you know what? Um, I've hit 40. No one's made any of the movies that I, I, like I'm kind of like a ghost writer and that's not really what I planned for myself. And Basically, I want to make some things again. And in advertising, I like to make things, whereas in film, I just kind of made scripts that never got made. So I went back into advertising. And to be honest, I felt almost like I had fluked getting into this job because they thought I was somebody that I wasn't. Uh, and what I mean by that is that I had this fantastic recurring freelance job that I did every year here in Berlin, which is when my relationship with this city started. And it was um, for five years in a row, six years in a row, I did the worldwide campaign for Mini Cooper because I had helped an agency here in Berlin win it. So to an outsider just looking at my folio, they'd go, oh, he was like the creative director of all the global mini work for seven years in Berlin. That's cool. And the reality was, no, nah, I just kind of would drop in for a freelance project and then I'd come back to LA and try and make it in the movies. And so when I got offered this insane job as my entree back into advertising, I was like, I, can't, I don't know if I can take this job because they're going to figure out pretty quickly. I don't know what I'm doing. And um, it was just really funny. Like I, I got in there and um, <clears throat> I was very concerned about telling anybody what to do because I thought I wasn't qualified for the job. Um, mm. And it was actually a producer who pulled me to one side Elaine was Elaine's name. God bless Elaine. She used to run our um, editing studio at Shire Day. She pulled me into her office one day and she said, I don't want to hear the words I don't know come out of your mouth ever, ever again. I was like, uh, okay. She goes, 
you are the leader of this account and what you have to do is you have to lead. It doesn't mean you have to have the right answer. It just means that you need to say to everybody, hey everyone, this is where we're going, follow me. That's your job because people want to be led. And if their leader isn't leading them, they get very, very nervous. So go out there and make the best decision you can based on everything you know right now. And it might be right, it might not be right, it actually doesn't matter. Wow. I was like, wow. <laughs> it, I'm not joking, I think it's because of Elaine and that conversation that I actually went on to have any kind of a career in America. Because then what I realized was, <clears throat> whatever this answer is, the right answer, there is no right answer. Right. No one's got it. It's just like you might make an ad and if you edit it like this, it's a bit better, or you edit it this way, it's a bit worse, whatever. You just make it the best thing you think it can be at the time. And I look back on some things that I did and I go, and at, you know, at the time I was like, this is amazing. And I look at it now and go, Ooh, yeah, um, it's not, not that great. And then other things that I was like eh, about, I look at them now and go, you know what? That's actually a really great piece of work. So, you know, you never know. Yeah. You never know. You just make the best decisions you can at the time. So, yeah. Yeah. I like, I mean, I love that story. That's an amazing, you know, conversation. It's, it's, it's pivotal. I think that was probably, you know, what really did yeah. catalyst um, because, you know, you and I were yeah. talking and, and I, I come from a marketing background. I have worked in an advertising agency. I will say that actually mm -hmm. the advertising agency was when I really felt imposter syndrome. When I first, I was an intern, yeah. I got started in an apartment, in a, a department. It was when social media was starting. I was a social media right. coordinator. We'd won a key account and they put me 22 years old, no idea what I was doing in charge of it. And right. I just fucked that up so hard. <laughs> like, yes. like I almost <laughs> lost them an account. I like, I mean, par, par from my boss being just an absolute a-hole. Uh, I just right. couldn't, um, I couldn't make it work because no one had given mm. me the tools to figure it out. They don't teach you this in college. You don't know what you're right. doing. And yeah. from that, I mean, thankfully I'm a, I'm a fast learner when it comes to mistakes mm. that I make. I don't repeat them. Uh, it's because I don't want to feel that way ever again. But I mm. will say mm. the least I've ever felt like I fit in or knew what I was doing was at an advertising agency because yeah. you have this added pressure pressure. When I remember when I got the job at Cactus, I was like, oh, wow, I'm at Cactus. That's amazing. Yes. It's the top advertising agency that's independent in Denver. Wow. I feel amazing. I'm so great. Oh God. But do I do, do I deserve it? Do I, should I be here? Oh. I, I, I'm mm. not creative. Uh, I'm not a copywriter. Mm. Like I'm, you know, all these things. Mm. And it was like, I gave myself self-doubt. It was almost like I willed it to happen. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, it's interesting. It's almost like advertising now, as we were talking about it, uh, is just kind of this, it's where you go if you are kind of kooky and creative, but a little hipstery and yes. you have an idea, but it's really not your idea. It's the four key account holders idea. And yes. you, you kind of get to make stuff, but overall there's so many bumpers in, in place that you can't yeah. really break the mold and no, be truly creative. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's a, there's a saying, same, same, but different. And that is, um, it's almost like people, um, it's very rare that clients come to you and want something that has never been done before because they want, they, they always want you to show them something like it. And you go, well, I can't show you something like if you want something that's truly never been done before. So most people don't actually want that. Um, and again, in, 
imposter syndrome. I mean, your clients all feel like imposters as well. Like they want to do just as well as they need to do to keep their, most, most clients I deal with in advertising want to do just as well as they need to do to keep their jobs, but they don't want to do anything too radical because if it doesn't work, they'll lose their job. Yes. And they've got kids in private school and stuff, you know, like they've got, you know, they've got big real world concerns. And so they you know, fear and mortgages has kind of been the death of, of advertising, but um, it's, well, of, of most, in, of, of a lot of creativity, let's say. But um, I mean, something else, you know, another, another point in my career where I was really feeling imposter syndrome when I first started there was that I had really not done at that point in my career, much work on social media. I didn't really, I'll be honest, I didn't really like it. I wasn't <laughs> interested in it. I mean, I saw it and I saw people using it and stuff and I understood what it was, but I was just like, eh, you know, like, yeah, but you know, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't my world. And then when I got into the ad agency in this, uh, Shy Day was the name of the ad agency and uh, is the name of the ad agency. And I was running the Nissan account and I just was um, paralyzed with fear. Anytime anything to do with social media came up, I'd be like, I'd pretend to have phone calls so I could walk out of the room. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> I was running from it. Um, and then I had this moment where it's like, dude, you really need to just, you need to be, vulnerable and actually admit that you don't know how to do this um, because you're just going to not only make life difficult for you, you're actually going to destroy really good ideas that should live because your own pride is not letting yourself say, I don't know what I'm doing. And yeah. so what I started doing was I was chatting with, and this is, a, this was, I found a really interesting moment in my career because I also thought as the guy running it I'm supposed to know everything and that's another thing about imposter syndrome you, you often feel well my take on it anyway is that you often I have often felt I'm supposed to have the entire answer I'm supposed to know everything and actually all you have to do is bring one important part that's all you have to do it doesn't have to be the whole thing and so what I started doing with, with the the, the um, social media, uh, any social media briefs that we had, because all the creatives worked on all mediums. We didn't have a separate creative department for social. Um, they would come in and present me things and I'd go, all right, you're going to need to explain this to me because I don't use this platform. Explain to me why this is good on this platform. Like what is it, how is it using the platform that's different? And I just, I would basically say, you're the expert. You tell me because I knew what I could do was once I understood how they were trying to tell the story, I could figure out the best way to tell it because my experience in my career has been, I've spent a lot more time figuring out how to tell stories. I'm very good at telling stories. So um, I learned social media through that and social media was actually where we made all our big wins on Nissan. We did really, really well in all the like the webbies and uh, you know, Facebook and um, uh, oh my god, I'm blanking now. But like you know, all the the all the award shows that would award really important pieces of work, like what's the website of the day, what's the best use of Facebook for this. We won all of that stuff on Nissan, yeah. and part of it is just you know me saying to myself, I don't need to know everything. What I need to do is get out of the way of the people who do, but come in and be important in helping them tell the story well. Like, 
I think maybe one of the best examples was we, we invented a property called Heisman House, which is, um, now I know nothing about sports, okay? Like I grew up in Australia. I know we have rugby and cricket and all these things. That was not my family. My family, we sailed and we cycled. That's yeah. it. I didn't know anything about these. So I get to the States, college football is insanity. And there's a thing called the Heisman Trophy, which they give to the most promising rookie everywhere. So I, again, mm -hmm. I didn't know any of this stuff. So this creative team came up with this really good idea, which was, why don't we do the Heisman House? So it's like a frat house or a fraternity, but it's all ex-Heisman winners. So basically it's like the all-stars of, of football come to do these ads. And I know nothing about football. I don't know who any of these players are. I don't know what they've done in their careers. And I would sit with the creative team to bring in scripts and they'd read things to me and then they'd laugh and I'd go, Okay, cool. So why is this funny? I don't know who these people are. Like, what is this? What, what are you referring to in this? And they would yeah, explain the whole thing and say, oh, if that's what you're doing, then actually the way you should do it is not, you know, Z, X, Y, but you should make it X, Y, Z. And then bam, the joke will land better. And they're like, oh shit, that would work better. And it was, it was really interesting to just go, I don't know what this is. I'll ask the experts and then I can bring in the bit that I know I can do. So again, that was another way I got around my own um, self-sabotage by just being vulnerable and admitting I didn't know things, but then bringing the parts that I did know. So, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. And um, I like that you were kind of like, hey, explain to me why this works. And then you could go, well, okay, well, it would work a little better if you just tweaked it here. And then that way you feel contributing. You you now understand it. You're, you're able to hop in. And there's something to be said about being able to, uh, with advertising, especially these days, um, getting it immediately. That is mm. kind of where um, it's been I think that's been the biggest challenge in the last 10 years is, is yes. create, you know, going from print is kind of, you know, dying, unfortunately, but then uh, now we're going digital, yeah. but then every platform has a different message in a different way. And I've mentioned mm. this uh, to someone recently, but uh, you know, getting laid off as a marketing director with a digital marketing background, when I look at jobs, I see, okay, well, they want digital marketing manager and I read the description, read the description. Oh, they want Google PPC. They want, uh, you know, email. They want this, 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 this. And when you break it down, yes, I have a digital marketing background. I can do all mm. of these things, but I'm jack of all trades, master of few. And mm. um, I'm very strong in writing. I'm very strong in a creative eye. I'm able to project manage. I'm able to lead a team. But what I'm not able to do anymore because it's so out of control is I can't handle the way the algorithms are in Facebook advertising. It's not my strong suit and I'll admit uh, it. Yeah. But yeah. I can tell you why you would use this medium and why you would mm. use, why you would do it. I'm just at a point where, call me old now, where I'm just, I can't, I can't work with it anymore. So when I'm looking at yeah. these job descriptions and I see you really want Facebook ads and you really want that, what I always curious on is who made that marketing decision? Because mm. not every brand needs to be advertising there and not every brand yes. needs to be on social media, nor does every brand need to be digital. I mean, really. So it's yeah. always kind of interesting as a, as a person that's got a marketing background that will walk into new positions and see all of the mistakes predecessors have done or a blank mm. canvas similar to what I actually used to do where I was in an industry title and escrow business to business never allowed or able to have any kind of advertising and suddenly the regulations had made it so that they could and they mm. were like it was like an untapped 
untouched brand. And my boss was looking to me like, what do we do? And mm. I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> like, what should we do? But yeah. I had to be the expert yeah. there and I had to make a lot of really yeah. interesting decisions. Um, but mm. yeah, I, I totally, I totally get it. And it's, it's, it's nice when you have your knowledge and your background and you're able to kind of lead things the way they should go and you're able to mm. contribute that tiny little piece so you feel like you're part of the puzzle. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's the analogy I always use. It's like the Avengers, you know, there aren't two people on the Avengers with the same superpower. They all have different superpowers. And, you know, also sometimes you have to be Nick Fury. I mean, you kind of have to be the sort of unsexy guy that organizes everything <laughs> that doesn't have a power, but that's a really pivotal role, you know, and it's knowing where you fit um, in there and what your strength, like my, my approach every, and you know, um, the, the approach I've always taken with whenever I have a creative department is um, every person on this, in this creative department has a superpower of some sort. And if I can't see it, that's my fault because I haven't looked hard enough. Yeah. Like they got this job for some reason. They can't be idiots. They're in a good agency. Um, what are they good at? And if I can't figure it out, then I need to spend more time with them or, you know, it's on me to figure that out. I'm their boss. Yeah. Um, and I'm in charge of their career while they're under my care and I have to figure out what they're amazing at. And then also what they want to be good at. You know, I, th I think one of the best compliments, and, and it's interesting because it came out of this thing of walking into Shire Day, feeling like I'd fluked getting the job, um, feeling massively out of my depth on, um, uh, you know, social media, even pop culture. I mean, a team presented me once this idea that had Reggie Watts in it. And I'm like, cool. Got to the end of it. I was like, who the fuck is Reggie Watts? <laughs> I'd never seen him. I'd never heard his name mentioned. I didn't know what he did. Like nothing, you know. So, um, you know, I, after going through this kind of catastrophe and thinking I'm going to get fired out of this because I don't know what I'm doing, working very vulnerably, including everybody and, and, and treating everybody as an expert, it helped me develop a style of, of leadership yeah. that um, one of the greatest compliments I have ever, ever been given is I had this star team. I mean, they were amazing. I loved this creative team. You could literally give them anything, any brief, and they would give you something back and it would be brilliant and it would be not what you expected. It was a joke. You would sit down for their reviews and I would sit there going like, because <laughs> I knew it would be something I'd never heard before. And they, of course, you know, grew beyond the job that they had and they went on, they got their first creative director jobs. And they said to me, one of the, um, when we sat down and went, all right, now we've been offered a job as creative directors, all right, how are we gonna do this? Who, which creative director have we worked for or which creative directors have we worked for that we wanna be like? And they said, so they asked themselves this question and they both looked at each other and they, at the same time they went, Carl. <laughs> and they rang me up and they're like, dude, we got offered a CD role. I'm like, awesome. And they said, and then when we thought about who we want to do it like, we both decided, well, we want to do it like you. Can you come and have lunch with us and just give us the breakdown and the lowdown? I'm like, wow, uh, it would be <laughs> my honor. And that's, again, all comes out of just being willing to be out of your depth, you know, because again, coming back to what we were talking about before, I think everyone is out of their depth all the time. Yeah. Always, you know? Yeah. Oh, um, I love that. And I would have hmm. probably loved working for you, honestly. I think that, oh. you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing that one person's advice 
catalysted you to become this incredible leader for a team. And um, yeah. I, I, I don't normally mention my family, but my sister did work on the Nissan account. I'm not sure. We're not sure mm. if you were working the same time, but I do remember the Heisman I know house. that. Oh my God. The Heisman house was, it was nuts. I mean, it turned <laughs> into a thing. They made a TV show out of it on ESPN. I mean, it had a life of its own. Um, yeah, it was really, and when I'd go to the shoots and I would meet these mega stars, I mean, these guys are, are gods. And I'm walking up to one of them because you can spot a football player a mile away. I mean, especially one that's <laughs> playing right now. And I'm looking, going, and like walking up to the, with the team, and I'm like, who's, who's this guy? Who's he playing for? Okay. Oh, he's that guy from that script? Okay, cool, cool. That's it. And I get there, and they'd start, you know, we'd chit chat, oh, there's our boss. And, oh, yeah. and they'd start talking football. And then I'd eventually I'd lean in and said, you know what, mate, I've got to be honest with you. I don't follow football. I have no idea about the game. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm not even going to try and fake having this conversation with you because I'm just, I'm going to fail. <laughs> and the guy's like, but you run the Heisman? I'm like, no, no, no. This creative team runs the Heisman. I kind of play, I don't know. I'm like, maybe MVP. I throw a good, I throw a good setup, you know. <laughs> the guy's like, that's a basketball term. I'm like, I knew, I knew that. I knew that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it was really like that team ran it because again, you know, once I'd helped to get on the rails to being the best ads it could be, you kind of have to let them do it because they were the experts, yeah. you know, those yeah, two absolutely. guys. So no one needs a creative director coming in and making an ad worse on set. <laughs> no one needs that. So yeah, it was, um, and it was great. I mean, Nissan was a massive account. We made so much stuff. We got to experiment so much. Um, it was a real privilege to work in that agency as well. I mean, that was the agency that invented the Apple campaigns. That's the agency yeah. where Lee Cloud worked. That's where, you know, um, some incredible campaigns came out yeah. of that agency. So it was a real, it was an honor to work yeah. there. It was great. <laughs> I love that. Right. Yeah. So we've kind of talked about um, some successes. Uh, and so now yes. I'm just going to ask you about, I love yes. asking this question because success looks different to everyone. So what does success look like to you? And do you feel successful? Uh, yes, but only very late in my career. Um, what I've discovered, and quite honestly, it's maybe just in the last year or so, um, is to... I've now figured out that the definition of success is doing something you love and doing it well for the sake of the doing with no expectation of what the result should be or how it's supposed to make you feel when it's finished. Yeah. It's ah. literally just the doing of it. Ah, I love that. Um, that's mm. awesome. It's kind of the key to life, uh, being able to actually yeah. do something you love every single day. Um, yes. You know, I've made this analogy with my husband. It's like my husband's in the military. It's it's a paycheck, honestly. He's can't wait mm -hmm. to get out. Um, <laughs> truly, he cannot wait to get out. He's counting down that clock to twenty. But yeah, you know, it affords us a lifestyle where it's okay that I'm not monetizing my podcast, and I'm but right. I love what I'm doing. It's mm. almost like I'm living my passion project every single day and I wake up yeah. grateful and I feel so stress-free because I'm doing something I love and that I've never had that before. And everyone always told me your twenties are trash, your thirties are going to be great. And then, you know, your forties are amazing and all that. 
and I, and I'm in my thirties, I'm 31 and I finally get what they meant. It's that you're, yeah. I'm starting to really figure out who I am and what I have to offer. And it's a really incredible thing when you start to just lean into those things that really yes. drive your soul forward. And that's when you do some of your most incredible work. And I'm feeling that oh. right now and I hope it keeps going. <laughs> no doubt. I mean, it's interesting. I was just, as you were saying that, I was just, just thinking maybe the reason we feel imposter syndrome is because we're wasting our time doing things that we're not supposed to be doing. So of course we feel like imposters. Oh, that's brilliant. I bet you, you know, I think that makes sense. For so long, yeah. I've tried to hide parts of me, um, oh. you know, in terms of uh, like, yeah. we'll go back to my first agency. I was told mm. that I, for my boss, he told me I had to be wary of people's perception of me. And I'll tell you what, Carl, mm. that stuck with me. It never left. Yeah. It was such yeah. an insult to me. I yeah. also was told at my first internship that I dressed like a child. That stuck with me as well. I was 19, like, or 20. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. like, I didn't know any better. I was in college. I didn't know shit. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting that those kind of negative things stuck with me. Um, but at the same time, it was like, oh, I wasn't meant to be there. I wasn't mm. meant to be there. I didn't fit. Mm -hmm. I didn't fit. And that's okay. I, yes. I think full-time advertising spent about five years, four or five years trying to kick me out because it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. Like, I really love the advertising world. I love the work we do. I love the creative problem solving. I love all the people that I get to work with. I mean, it is a really pretty amazing place, but is a place that is full of frustrated artists. Yes. who should be doing something quite different with. In fact, Banksy had this fantastic quote about advertising, which was he, he like that he hates advertising. He said, I hate advertising because it's one of the few ways that creative people can make a regular paycheck and exactly. it is robbing us of our artists. And he said, the art, he, he was making this point that the modern art world at that point in time, it was an absolute disaster area because never have so many people with so little to say been making art. He said, because the real people who should be artists are wasting their time in advertising. And that's why he despised the ad industry. That makes so much sense. Because it robbed sense. the art world. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I um, actually, yeah. I yeah, mean, it's really, um, he, he's, he's, he's violently anti-advertising. And yet when you look at his work, he approaches his work with the wit of someone who works in advertising. Yeah. Like there is a kind of interesting boom tish to it that I, for years, I mean, we still don't know who he is. I mean, obviously there's one massive rumor um, of who it is, but um, I actually wondered if he was an ex bitter advertising guy um, just because there was a sensibility to it. Yeah. 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 It's interesting that you I was say trying that. To find a, I was, yeah. yeah. Go on. Well, I was going to go back to your point about advertising and advertising agencies. When I started college, I wanted to be a graphic designer. And the only uh, job you could get is an advertising agency if you're a graphic designer. Uh, so so I, I, I very much believe in the conversation about Banksy and, and all of that and art 
And I'm very mm. fascinated currently by the trends and the movement of Black Lives Matters. I'm from, uh, I, I identify being from Denver. Um, it's my city. Uh -huh. I spent nine years after, there after college. And there is a gorgeous right. movement going on right now. Unfortunately, it shouldn't have to happen. They shouldn't have to be painting the voices of the oppressed. But there mm. is these two graffiti artists. Actually, they're both artists, um, but one mm. specializes in street art. His name's Hero Viega. And the other one is uh, Detour 303, who they both do these beautiful, incredible murals. And what they're doing, they started this thing called Spray Their Name. And Spray Their Name came a lot about mm. from the Black Lives Matter. They started with a mural for George Floyd in Denver. And then they did a Breonna Taylor and an Elijah McClain, which is a very very sad story. Um, right now we're, we're, we're really, really forcing that conversation forward so that there's justice for Elijah. That's a Colorado one. And they, they said, mm -hmm. basically, how can we make a difference with our platforms? And what they're doing is they're raising money to go worldwide and get murals for voices of the oppressed or something that happened in that community. So I'm working right now with, I, I live in Lemon Grove, which is uh, just outside of East County. I'm working with the Improvement Council to try and get a mural procured here. And, um, but I, I mean, I just love what they're doing, but uh, they found a way to live their art and now they can give back in such a way. And not everyone as an artist, it sucks. You can't really make a living unless, mm. unless you're able to get that one break and then pff, there you go. And so that's, I think, yeah. why everyone that's in, you know, one, people in advertising are typically miserable. And two, yes. I think that some of the best talent is dying in an agency. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. I, you know, the, the problem with advertising, again, also is it's the golden handcuffs. Because not only do you get paid extraordinarily well, um, you get used to being paid extraordinarily well. And there's a lot of people who, you know, in ad agencies I met who were like, oh, you know, I could leave this anytime. It's like, mm, could you though? Because <laughs> you seem to really like $300 t-shirts a lot. And uh, that's not going to be part of your life. Um, I think, it, 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 you know, when you say that thing about making a living, um, that is something also I really had to, look at like what is a living mm -hmm. um and uh it's i think it's so much more important than i mean we you know i don't i don't want to say bad things about america because i i really am so inc i mean i lived there for 13 years um and i still may again you know i'm 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 you know i i, I still you know am working in the States and enjoying having that option, you know, um, and it is a really fantastic place, but there is just this feeling when you live in America that you are in some, you are competing in some race that you're not really exactly sure what the rules are, but you know, the objective is have more. <laughs> and it's more than anyone around you, certainly. And um, something that people said to me when I first came here to Berlin was, dude, you need to stop talking about money so much. Ah. I was like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't talk about money. They're like, you talk about money all the time. And when I really started watching my, there's a game that I noticed goes on in America, which is you never really explicitly say how much money you have, but you drop a lot of hints. 
in a conversation. <laughs> and it's kind of almost like the animal kingdom, like how you establish a pecking order. And um, when I first moved to the States, I saw it and I thought, well, I'm a foreigner, so I'm never going to fall into this trap. But of course, you know, if you live in a country for a while, you become part of its culture. Culture becomes part of you. And there is so much that is great about America. There is, it, it, it really is a very unique and special place. There are things that happen there that don't happen anywhere else in the world that are good things, you know. Um, but it, it's money obsessed and I became money obsessed. So my idea of what was a living when I lived in America was kind of insane, really. It was a bit insane, to be honest, because my, you know, um, shortly after leaving the States, I ended up living in a squat in, sorry, I should not say that. I'm gonna rewind. I was living in a collective. It was a former squat that was bought by the residents. There, it, it, it's kind of a, there are systems in place here where a loan can be made available to people who want to do that in a socialist democracy like Germany. Okay. And um, so it was, it was bought by the people who lived there and turned into a collective. And um, I think 40 or 50 people lived there. But, you know, I was living in a room in one of the apartments in the collective and uh, all the furniture that I had there was was lent to me or found um, and I was sleeping on an air mattress and I had 700 euros left and I thought my life was over. I mean, it was such, it was such, it was, I almost had whiplash from how quickly my fortunes turned around. But um, I think one of the things is that, you know, you, you, the more money you make the, in America, the more, the further you are away from people who don't, who are not in your socioeconomic level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so when I was living in this collective, I was, you know, my roommates and, and, and the people in the building, I mean, some of them were asylum seekers or had been asylum seekers and now citizens of the country. Other people are artists. I mean, uh, you know, other people have chosen a life, uh, you know, they might be really low income teachers, but they've chosen a life that allows them to do something that they really want to do. And it was, so the idea of what you need to make a living, I mean, my friend who got me the place when I, when I lived in there, um, I mean, he lived on what I used to blow through in, he, he lived on in a year, what I would blow through in about two and a half weeks in the States. <laughs> and I, he lived a great life, you yeah. know, and we had a really interesting conversation once that was about, I was so terrified about everything that I was losing during, um, uh, my divorce, which is what my book is about. Mm -hmm. Um, that, um, you know, when I saw people like him living so carefree with no thought of money, it made absolutely no sense to me. <laughs> so I yeah. was like, I said to him at one point, my God, aren't you worried about money? And he's like, well, not really. I mean, you know, I'm going to get a pension and it's kind of a bit more than what I make now. So I'll be cool. I'm like, but, 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 but don't you ever like, haven't you ever thought about like, money and wealth and, and it's just getting some more things around. He goes, man, not really. I mean, you know, but things are things, whatever. It's like, and then I asked him like, haven't you ever wanted to be rich? And he goes, Oh, Oh no, I want to be rich, but I want to be rich like a chocolate cake. <laughs> and that was his attitude was that he said, look at you and look at what you did to yourself because you were climbing. You know, I got on this thing of just climbing the ladder and, uh, and I lost my way and I lost my sense of myself. And all I was doing was pursuing the next title, the next income, the next whatever. And uh, 
you know, I, after living in the collective, I really began to realize how little that meant, you know, I mean, I, I mean, there was one stage during my divorce where, you know, before it was resolved and whatever, and I really thought I was going to lose it all. I mean, I was collecting, I don't want to make it actually, I don't want to make it sound like I was destitute. I have parents, I have friends, I could always have reached out and got money, but I fell so far from where I was and then realized I hadn't died that I thought, could I just keep doing this on my own? Like, what could I do? And I started learning tricks from all the people in the collective about how to get around things, how to get stuff free, where you find these things, how you can collect 16 plastic bottles and get them and recycle them. And then you have enough money to buy lunch. And um, I was like, okay, I'm just going to make this last bit of money I have stretch out for as long as I can. And it was the greatest re-education. I guess what I'm getting to is it was the greatest re-education, not about money, but of what actually really matters. Yeah. Yeah, and oh, that's awesome. It just, the money just doesn't, I mean, it matters, but it really doesn't matter. Yeah. It, yeah. I think also like in, you lived in LA and LA is very yeah. paycheck to paycheck, affluence uh, creep. My God. It, yes. You're always in, so I, I, I'm, I yeah. live in Southern California. I live in San Diego. We're very, hey man, how's it? You know, very, yeah. very, very laid back. Um, mm. but LA is, um, you know, so I would say New York city is rat race, yeah. race but LA yeah. is, uh, very much competitive. It's who, you know, it's, uh, yes. how much money do I make? Look at this watch. It was $300. Look at this shoe, yes. look at these sneakers. Mm. And so it's interesting that when you went to Berlin, you suddenly sort of figured out that like people are, can be content with just what they have. And yes, that's yes. something humbling. It's beautiful to learn that. And I agree mm. with you. America can be very, hmm, uh, look at what I have. Like even my husband, you know, we're, we're our house, we returfed the house. We bought a house and we returfed it. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, you, you bring up money even when you don't mean to. Like, mm. you know, you, like, you're like, oh yeah, like this wasn't too bad. It was like this much and that was this much. And, and you don't yes, realize you're doing it. Yes. And um, yeah. you're right. Yeah. I never actually thought about that. But yeah, it's, it yeah. makes a, a ton of sense. And I think Americans were just so money focused because of the thing of the American yeah. dream. And, um, but I, I admire people who are completely self-made. And I mm. admire people who are just content with what they have. And that is something yeah. I've been working really hard to just be content. Like it's, yes. it's okay um, to just mm -hmm. have what you have. So I love that. Um, mm. So I think we've identified the topic at hand. We've talked about the elephant in the room, which is imposter syndrome. We, you and I could talk mm. for days, but this is my favorite Ooh, part yeah. of the conversation. Uh, talking about mm. things we're fanatical about and why. Um, I currently am fanatical. I have never been into crafting before. I've never been a crafter. Right. Um, I had mm. undiagnosed adult ADHD as a kid. Mm. And they were like, she's squirrely. And now I'm finally, uh, I finally am medicated for it and I'm able mm. to complete tasks and projects. And I found my crafting niche. My friend's, uh, my friend's super into quilting. That's her thing. My mother-in-law's super into quilting. I've never been great at crafts because I just couldn't pay attention for long enough to like get something done. Mm. And right. um, I dress like Miss Frizzle. It's just, I'm very rainbows and glitter and black. So mm. I started making hair bows for girls or people who ah. identify as girls. I love ribbon and um, I just, I don't know. That's what I'm fanatical about right now. My husband just bought me a huh. brand new glue gun and I'm trying to make a shop on Etsy and we'll see what happens. But it's just kind of nice. a hobby that I picked up and I'm just, I love it. <laughs> 
Nice. Nice. I like that. I like that. So how about you? <laughs> what am I fanatical about? Um, what am I fanatical about these days? Um, you know, I guess what I would say is, 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 oh my God, this is going to sound, <laughs> it's going to sound so Californian, but actually, no, truly the, the thing I'm most fanat like fanatical about these days is always making sure I return to hike my inner wilderness. Hiking my inner wilderness is my thing right now. It, and I ah. feel like I'm almost playing catch up on that. Um, I go through periods of it where, you know, um, during my divorce and writing the book, I was fanatically trying to drill down to get to the bottom of, you know, a lot of stuff. Um, but once you've, you know, once I'd had my sort of epiphany and, and, and um, breakthrough and then realized that that actually was just not, it wasn't enlightenment, it was a lesson and I was going to have to learn how to live it. Um, enlightenment, unfortunately, didn't grant me the power to levitate, which I was hoping it would. Instead, <laughs> it was like, here's the truth, now you actually have to live it. Mm -hmm. um, and that was it's the learning to live it is actually really um, it's, it's more, it's sometimes really easy and sometimes very difficult, but I find in the days when I'm finding it difficult, it's like, you know what, dude, you haven't been meditating enough. You haven't been spending enough time being still mm. and just letting things land. There's a great Buddhist quote, which is sometimes the soul collects sometimes simply by sitting, the soul gathers wisdom. And after, you know, spending my entire life running away from myself to have actually discovered who I am and what makes me tick has been, is a, a better rush than anything I've ever felt before. And um, so I'm spending my time there. That's kind of what I'm fanatical about at the moment. I'm, I'm having a kind of string of little minor epiphanies, you know, the yeah. last couple of weeks, which has been nice. I love that. Yeah. I'm, I think it's never too late to figure out yourself. Uh, I tell my listeners oh, all yeah. the time. Uh, yeah. I used to actually, it's funny, I used to actually advocate for therapy and now I'm in therapy. So I took my own advice. Mm. Thank, thank you to myself. Um, but I find that you know, living with the things that make you who you are and being okay with them, there is such contentment yes. from Yes. That's something I'm working on is uh, mm. like last, last week, my therapist was like, Hey, uh, you need to feel joy, shamelessly mm. feel joy. And you just mm. got this puppy. You have to feel very joyful. And she said, joy is going to mm. feel really hard for you for a while. Uh, and it's okay mm. if you can only just do it in small joices, doses, but you have to allow yourself to feel joy. And so mm. I really worked on that this week. And I've got to say, I feel so much better um, yeah. where I started, you know, realizing it's okay to feel the things I'm feeling. And so mm. I love that you kind of hiking your inner enlightenment and your, and your psyche and all of that and learning who you are. I, I think that's a beautiful thing to be fanatical about. We should all, mm. be, you know, trying our hardest to figure out who we are. Yeah. And, and, and being kind to ourselves when we yes. discover what's there. I mean, I, you know, there was so much about myself. I just, uh, just hated. And I, I kept thinking that this is something that I must get rid of. Mm. This is something that it, it, it's it like a terrible part of me or it's something that doesn't serve me. I have to somehow have it like surgically removed almost, ah. you know, if I could have. And yet what I've discovered now is that it's like, no, it's, 
all those things are fine. You know, yeah. it, it's okay to feel all these emotions and, and to be kind to yourself. Like what I catch myself doing these days, and this is a very new thing is, you know, I will find myself like, you know, riding my bike and I'll suddenly get super angry about something that happened in the past mm -hmm. or whatever. And, um, and these days, this is the new part of it. I actually catch myself in the middle of it and start laughing at myself, <laughs> but laughing with myself at the same time. It's like, oh, dude, you know? <laughs> oh my God, you're doing that thing again. And it's actually genuinely funny. Yeah. Not in a, not in a, like a tragic way or a mean way, or it's actually really like I, this part of me is fine. It's fine that it's here Yeah. Um, because I see it for what it is and I see what it's doing and that's okay. You know, I had, um, I, I, I really like the fact that, you know, I can accept all these different parts of myself now and mm -hmm. Even the things that before I thought were shameful or weird or um, yeah, destructive and just go, no, I, I understand what they are. And I understand why that feelings come up now, because I know that X happened and that's triggered this, which always makes me think this. And um, it's just, it's been really nice to just sort of embrace all of it. And actually sometimes even be able to like even compose a recipe out of it. Go, you know, I'm going to need a couple of spoonfuls of that. <laughs> and then I'm going to need a little cup of this. And I might need a couple of drops of disdain and maybe one, just a little, like a pinch of self-sabotage because that'll actually make the whole recipe work. <laughs> but yet to know all the ingredients and know what you're putting into it as you go in, it's, um, it becomes very forgiving. Yeah. And that you find things that you thought maybe were your worst fears about yourself turn into to the things that are your greatest strengths. Like I was at the start of my divorce, I was so ashamed of the fact that I'd, my marriage had failed and that mm -hmm. um, I'd let down the cause, you know, because mm -hmm. I was, I was at the time I was literally the only divorcing gay man that I knew. Now I've met several more since then, of course, but at the time I thought I was it. I knew there must have been more, but I, there was no one else I knew. And the shame was so extraordinary that um, part of some of the most, some of the worst mistakes I made at the beginning was because I just didn't want to tell anyone. Um, so I was making very rash decisions. And now, and, and what I thought would be maybe one of the greatest shames of my life. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote a book about it. I mean, yeah, you know, you I did. Mean, like it, <laughs> so it, it, it sort of like what I thought was going to be the greatest shame that I'd ever gone through. It, 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 it turned into something that gave my, you know, it gave me a purpose. Yeah. Thank God I had one when I first got here to Berlin, but it actually has given me, um, it's the first thing I've ever done in my life with absolutely no thought of monetary gain. Yes. Fame. Or what is this, what is the end result supposed to be? And then how will I feel because of what I imagine that end result to be? Yes. And it's the first time in my life I've ever done this. It's oh. great. Yeah. I mean, from everything you've talked about, we'll just skip the rest of the questions. Let's just go into it. I always ask my guests if they'd like to promote mm. something. And uh, I know you do. Um, let's just, you know, this is our new elephant in the room. Let's talk about your book. All right. All right, excellent. Um, well, um, as anyone listening might have uh, figured out by now, is that I, um, I'm gay, obviously, and that when I lived in America, I was, I was married and then got divorced to an American man. And um, I discovered our, our divorce, unfortunately, went very ugly very early. And I started looking for a book on gay divorce and I couldn't find one. Mm 
And instead, I found a lot of books uh, written by heterosexual men and women on the subject, tons, but um, they just didn't speak to me. They didn't speak to, they weren't written, and not to say that there were not valuable things in them, but they just weren't, I, this book wasn't written for me, you know, I, and you read it knowing this because you know, it's like, well, I didn't have a wife, you know, I had a husband, even though I am the guy and I'm reading the guy's book, you know. So, um, and it also wasn't speaking to the kind of losses that I was feeling either, which, you know, some of which were, you know, I'd failed in my marriage, you know, so that's a huge loss, of course, but that, you know, that I'd spectacularly failed the cause because, you know, they'd only let us get married for, for 10 minutes, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I was already getting divorced. And, um, but, you know, I lost my, um, I really lost my, my hiding place in the gay community. Mm-hmm. where um, I, you know, when, when my sort of like straight advertising, you know, hetero world life, when that sort of got on top of me, I could always go out into, you know, any of my favorite gay bars and go drinking with mates or whatever and just lose myself and have a gay old time for a night. And instead what started happening is like complete strangers would walk up to me in bars and go, are you the one getting a divorce? Oh. Like, Oh, this, this happened on numerous occasions. Scarlet letter. Um, Jeez. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it's really felt that, um, you know, these losses were, you know, and also, I, 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 I mean, to be perfectly honest, and this is, this was a very hard thing to admit to myself is that I lost the sense of equality that I'd felt in the heterosexual mm-hmm. world. It was um, like marriage is marriage. And what I found was that there was, once you're in that club, when you're, you're married, I mean, it is considered one of the greatest things that you can do in our society is like the pinnacle of success mm-hmm. in Western society is to get married. And then when you've been like gay, well, when you are gay and you sort of like, you're already a minority mm-hmm. and a minority that had to fight to get this thing to be married. And then you get married and then no one ever tells you that now you're in the club. Like you get, like, you feel like you're in a club. And yeah. the, this is the part I hate. I really hate saying this, but when I got engaged, um, <clears throat> what happened was I walked back into the office and I was wearing a ring on my finger and, mm-hmm. uh, word got around the office really fast and suddenly every single heterosexual married dude in the place was down in my office. Guys I'd only like waved to in the corridor and stuff or like, oh, what's up? You know, like I didn't know who they were. They came in my office and it was like bear hugs and congratulations all round. And, yeah. you know, it was, it was amazing. They were, because the thing is like gay men and straight men will never completely understand each other's lives. We really won't. But Every guy knows what it is to go by the ring, plan the moment, yep. get down on one knee, pop the question, slide the ring on that finger and go, this is the greatest thing I'm ever going to do in my life. And now we had this in common and it was the same thing. And I hate to say it, but it was the first time in my life I ever felt like I was as good as they were. Interesting. And so when I got divorced, I not only lost the kudos and, you know, the social standing you have, but that feeling of equality also disappeared. Yeah. And no one talks about that in divorce books because you're divorced when you're heterosexual and you're divorced. Yes, that's a blow. But when you're gay and divorced, you're, you, my experience of it anyway, was that you almost like for myself, I felt like I'd I'd lost this superpower. 
you know, yeah. yeah. Mm. It makes so much sense. Um, and, and when you described this book to me before I clicked record, I was like, wow, I can't believe there isn't a book about this. I know. I that was the love, craziest I thing to me. I wish there'd been a book when I was going through it, you know, and that's actually why yeah. I wrote it because I really didn't want any gay man or anyone really. I mean, by the end of the book, it ends up being gay and getting divorced. It's kind of irrelevant, you know, but, you know, I just didn't want anyone to go through what I went through blind like yeah. I did. You know, the analogy I use in the book is that, you know, gay divorce was a desert and I was a broken unicorn walking blindly oh, through it. I love that. Um, it was, it was, it was just awful. It was, like, I mean, divorces are lonely, but when you are literally the only gay man, you know, getting a divorce, it is the loneliest thing I've ever gone through yeah. by far. Yeah. yeah. And so I just, the major thing with writing the book and then, you know, trying to, uh, you know, organize the, the sort of online life for it is I just don't want anyone to think they're alone. Yeah. I thought I was, I really did. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes people have to go through extreme pain to figure out who they are. And then yeah, the fact that you're wanting to give back and make people feel that they have a sense of community in your gay community, mm. you're finding a sub pocket that needs light. And that yeah. is going to yeah. be so great for more people because as we mentioned earlier before we you know, started recording, the rate mm. of um, divorce is actually going up. Oh, yeah. And because people yeah. can't live with their partner any longer. Yeah. And yeah. It, then 24-7 is not working. Um, and mm. so I, I just think the need for this, like you said, you know, you're striking while the iron is hot and you're currently looking for an agent and a publisher. But for me, from my I perspective, am. I think it's a, it's this, you know, it's a knockout, truly. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, I think um, one of the things I was most terrified about was, you know, when I, when I wrote the first draft, I literally wrote it as a guidebook. It was literally like a how-to and it was called The Gay Man's Guide to Divorce. Mm -hmm. And um, I used the structure of a guidebook to hide. Yeah. Um, and that first draft, it was read by several people and you know, people I'd sort of handpicked the different points of view that I thought they would bring to it. Um, and one of the best compliments I got about that version of the, I mean, you have to get that first version done. You know? yes. Like you just have to, in, in screenwriting world, we say you have to vomit up the first draft and just get <laughs> it out there. Um, but even that first draft, a, a, a heterosexual female friend of mine who read it said to me, you've just made things that happened in my divorce suddenly make sense. I said, you, yeah. you have something to say in this book. Uh, she said, even for me, I don't live in your world, but I get, I get it. I get some of the things that you went through. Um, and she said, and what's more is you've actually helped me understand things that happened and things that I did myself, which I, without re knowing like, why am I doing this? You know? So, um, what I discovered basically from her comment and other people's was anytime I was not hiding in the guidebook format, but being very vulnerable and honest, that was the moments that they were the moments that people were really relating to. So I yeah. made a decision to rewrite it as a memoir. And unfortunately, that. when you do that, you really have nowhere to hide. Like, yes. and if you're not, if you're not prepared to be a hundred percent honest, um, then you shouldn't be writing a book like that. And so it was really, I had to tell, I mean, in this book, there is, um, I described some pretty bad things that I did, I think in retrospect, you know, um, I think things that I did to myself, uh, to other people, um, and also just the whole um, uh, 
it really like you kind of witnessed the destruction of one version of myself and the, mm-hmm. the, the what what came out of it and you know you have to get pretty low you gotta get pretty low and so the reader gets to come with me as i hit my rock bottom and it was pretty it was pretty rough you know yeah um yeah yeah it was it was really bad i mean it but it was um so when i finished this version of it there's one friend of mine in particular who's um, here in Berlin, he's Irish, his name is Tynan. And Tynan is one, of, I'm sure you, you, everybody has a friend like this, I think, well, if you're lucky, you have a friend like Tynan, who um, is such an incredible, voracious reader. Like, it is terrifying how much stuff he has read, thought about, analyzed. Like, every time I come away from a conversation with Tynan, I go like, I don't read enough and I don't think enough. <laughs> and I'm a writer, you know, like, <laughs> and he, um, he's got an incredible analytical mind and I was more worried about his opinion of this version of the book than anybody else's. And, um, you know, when he took it, he said, now I'm going to take it, but you know, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think of this book. I'm like, all right, that's what I'm hoping for. And in equal parts terrified that you're going to do. And, um, it's really funny. Like when Tynan gave me the thumbs up on, he's like, this is a really good book. He's like, it's really good. I, he said, I couldn't put it down. Oh, that's and great. I was, it was such a relief. It was actually the moment where I thought, you know what, I think I really do. It was a confirmation. I think I really do have something to say. Yeah. Um, and yet there's an interesting point in that as well, that, you know, something I've having to learn along the way is to not look at outside sources for confirmation of things that I already know to be true. Right. And I, I knew I had a good book but I needed Tynan's approval of it or someone <laughs> that like the Tynan in your life to approve it. And it, it did help, but he didn't tell me because it sounds a little bit verbose, but he didn't tell me anything I didn't know, but just, just because I, I, I put so much into this book and given so much to it that at the end of it, of course, you know, every writer has, you know, you're in the middle of it and going, maybe this is a piece of crap. Maybe I'm having myself on. Who do I think I am to actually even write about this in the first place? Like, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a psychologist. Like, I'm just someone who went through one. But then, you know, you get to the end of it and you go like, wow, this actually is, it's really something. It's a, it's yeah. a thing. It has a value and a place. And I guess, like you said, you know, at the beginning, it's like if, you, if each podcast episode you make touches one person, job done. Yes, And that's exactly. how I feel about my book. I thought if one person reads this and it helps them in some way that they can avoid some of the worst of what I went through, fantastic. I will die a happy man. <laughs> I love that. I'm so excited for like what's going to happen for you. I mean, I just feel <laughs> very elated to learn about it. I'm excited to read it. Um, I definitely will just because I mean, I, it's Thank just you. such a unique take. I'm glad that you were the one to write it. I think it's going to be a perfect and amazing story. And I know, like we, like I said, we could probably chat for hours. Honestly, you're incredibly interesting. I'm I'm excited that you're my life. I've gotten to meet you. Um, but we're coming towards the end of our conversation. Um, so I always like to give, um, my listeners kind of some parting advice from the guests on my show. So if you have any advice to give and some parting words to leave them with, I'd be all ears. Ah, how fantastic. I found a quote by Patti Smith the other day, and I think it perfectly sums up everything (laughs) we've been talking about. So Patti Smith once said, build a good name, keep your name clean. Uh Don't make compromises. Don't worry about making a bunch of money or being successful. 
Be concerned about doing good work. Protect your work. And if you build a good name, eventually that name will be its own currency. Life is like a roller coaster ride. It is never going to be perfect. It is going to have perfect moments and rough spots, but it's all worth it. Ah, oh, my heart. I love it. That's she's good. Amazing. It's an yeah, amazing she's quote. Real good. Awesome. And I, I love that bit about, it, you know, for me, it's like keep your name clean and don't make compromises. Yes. And eventually your name becomes its own currency, which is not money. It's that your name has value because you have carried yourself a certain way and you have stuck to the things that you believe to be important. Yes. Um, and I think that's, that's the greatest thing. Greatest thing. I mean, I, I really like Patti Smith. I think she's, she's yeah. one of those amazing things, but one of the most amazing people like writers and, and I don't even want to call her a personality that just seems, you know, uh, reductive, but I would also say like something for me um, to leave with the listeners, I would say the greatest single thing you can do in this life is to know yourself. Yes. And it will take care of literally everything else. Oh, again, I love it. I was about to say, you should write a book, but you did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. Oh, Carl, this was oh, an utter way, delight. I, should, oh, keep, keep I just going. realized, I don't, think I've even, I don't think I've even said the title of the book. I probably oh. should say that. Oh, yeah, you should. <laughs> so, hey, readers, if you've enjoyed this podcast, anyway, the book that is coming out is called My Gay Divorce. Um, and, uh, the, the subline is, uh, one gay man's story of how his marriage didn't make him whole, but his divorce did. Yes. I love that. And, uh, I will just, you didn't mention it, but I'm going to just plug it real quick. You consider it a gay eat, pray, love. Yes. That is by, I think a very good description of it. Yeah. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I'm excited. Um, and Carl, thank you so much all the way from Berlin, giving me Aww. an hour of your time. I've really appreciated this. And to my listeners, thank you for listening to Please Don't Take Me Out, a podcast about imposter syndrome. If you like what you hear, you want to connect with Carl, you want to read the book, all of that information is going to be in the description. And as always, please like, comment, share, subscribe, give me a rating on Apple Podcasts. Because of your support, I'm able to share these star stories like Carl's with you. So thank you, Carl. I really appreciate appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been wonderful. I really <laughs> enjoyed myself. Awesome. Thank you so much and enjoy your evening. Cheers. Shall do. Enjoy your day. All right. This has been Please Don't Kick Me Out, a podcast about imposter syndrome. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, like, comment, share, tell a friend. You know, that's how I'm going to keep these stories and going. Also, if you want to be a podcast guest, you can reach out to me at pdkmopodcast at gmail.com and we can get it set up. Thanks everyone for your continued support. And I look forward to, you know, connecting with you again next Monday.